Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. My guest today is Grace Wu. Grace is Assistant Professor in the Environmental Studies Program at UC Santa Barbara. Grace conducts research at the intersection of land use change and climate change mitigation. And today, she's going to talk to us about a paper she and several co-authors published in January in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which is on minimizing conflicts to habitats and ecosystems when meeting net zero energy targets. We're going to talk to Grace about the motivations for the study, describe its key findings, and then we'll chat a bit about some of the implications for policy. Stay with us. Hello, Grace. It's really good to talk with you today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. As a big fan of RFF, I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for your kind words. Um, So you know, if you're a fan of the show, that before we dive into a discussion of your recent paper, I want to ask you to share a little bit about yourself. Um, I mentioned your current academic position and the focus of your research, but can you just tell us a little bit about how you kind of came to be an environmental researcher? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I actually studied insect ecology and evolutionary biology as an undergraduate and really stemmed from a fascination with little things in the natural world. And I was working as a technician for the U.S. Geological Survey is stationed um, at the Lake Michigan Field Station. I was tasked with looking at climate change impacts on an endangered Carner blue butterfly. And even though I was looking at climate change, I actually learned that it lost 95% of its former range and habitat due to just land use conversion and degradation. And so when I was trapsing around my field sites, I really, like it was very visible. I would happen upon a steel mill, uh, some housing development, roads, just fragmenting this little remaining habitat. And the species does not disperse very far. So any amount of fragmentation really inhibited um, its range. So luckily, its habitat is now protected under Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore. Um, And through our work, we really did establish that climate change was driving this precipitous drop of uh, the population in Indiana. So it drove, it's really pushing them over the edge. But uh, what we, I really found out was that uh, they were driven to the edge by land use change. Um, So that experience working um, on that project inspired me to go back to school and examine drivers of land use change and really work towards avoiding uh, future habitat loss. So when I was a graduate student, I was exposed to a lot of visionary thinking about the future of the energy system. I was at the Energy and Resources Group at UC Berkeley, um, and really a lot of talk about how transformational a low-carbon transition would be, including in our use of land, uh, for which there was very little research uh, and interest in at, at that time about. Um, And it was going to possibly be due to this massive, but yet unknown build out of how much renewable energy infrastructure we need, and very little information about how land consuming those technologies would be. So that's what brought me to this problem in this paper. Yeah, that's a really great background for this paper. So I'm really glad you talked about that and talked about your work. So let me give the high level view of the paper. Um, It's all about the investments that we're going to have to make in this country in the coming years in various renewable energy and other technologies, as well as electricity transmission capacity, 
in order to make significant progress on the climate crisis, while at the same time ensuring that all this new infrastructure doesn't create these ecological problems in the process. So um, you kind of just said that yourself, and I'm just providing that big picture framing. But now maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what specifically you set out to study in this paper and why. So my co-authors and I were really interested um, in whether broadly conservation and the most ambitious climate goals, uh, which may need a lot of space to achieve, would be compatible. So my my colleagues and co-authors, um, mostly at the Nature Conservancy, like Sophie Parker and Joe Fargioni and um, Erica Brand, who is actually now at the California Energy Commission, have really been thought leaders and forerunners on the issue for quite a, a long time. And they've been working with state agencies and industries to identify ways for clean energy and biodiversity to coexist. The outstanding issue was really compatibility at full scale, as opposed to at a project by project level. So what we were trying to accomplish with this study, um, which TNC or the Nature Conservancy refers to as the power of place uh, West, this is the uh, second of, of multiple versions of the study looking at this problem at different scales. Um, we were trying to find ways to scale up this particular mission of compatibility. And we asked a few questions. Uh, first, we wanted to know what demand side and supply side um, energy pathway choices. So these are decisions that we make as a society through regulation and incentives that are going to help us reduce overall energy land use needs for meeting a very ambitious net zero economy wide target. And secondly, we wanted to know what and how much clean energy would we need to be deployed to minimize habitat loss. Um, and as an important component of that, we wanted to know where that infrastructure would need to go. Um, with that, after answering that question, we then are able to get at this, this uh, last issue, which is to what extent do land use protections and ocean use protections actually avoid uh, habitat loss? Um, and what other land use dynamics and ramifications would that cause, especially on the social aspect of land use? Mm -hmm. Yes. So you're telling us a little bit about some of the, obviously the motivation and where the paper went. Um, just gave us a little bit more of a sense of how it advanced the literature. You mentioned the Nature Conservancy work, and there's been other work, some of it your own. And so what, what do you see as the main contribution on this topic that you're making? Was it the net zero um, component or, or what exactly? Um, most certainly, yes, this is the first. So I, I um, alluded to the fact that this is one of multiple power of place studies at different scales. This is most certainly the first to look at net zero economy wide um, with an explicit focus on the energy sector component of that. Um, but I would say our main contribution is uh, methodologically. Um, our study really wanted to develop and demonstrate a framework for integrating land and ocean use planning into an energy planning process. Um, so what we needed to do was to add really highly spatially explicit aspects to this typically aspatial energy planning process, uh, which is if it's non-spatial, it's at least very spatially coarse. In fact, it's so spatially coarse that 
uh, the energy modeling inputs and outputs are fairly useless for stakeholders interested in citing concerns. Uh, these are stakeholders involved in land management, uh, the farming community, conservation community most certainly, and even social justice communities interested in who become the host communities for these types of projects. Um, yet these energy models make super important decisions about which generation technologies we ought to be investing in and when. So these are investment models um, that kind of predict or forecast or anticipate how much and when um, and which. But that leaves uh, a gap between planning ambitions, like all of this infrastructure we think we need and when, and the actual implementation process. And I think this growing and very glaring gap is something that we really need to address because renewables have both large space and specific site requirements. Um, and thus, really, those two things together could potentially cause significant land use conflicts that threaten the success of the project, so our ability to achieve those targets, and or the integrity of remaining wildlife habitat. Um, so... To the best of my understanding, our study is the first to really bridge that gap methodologically um, by providing really highly spatially specific assumptions about conservation compatible land use um, in an investment decision model. Um, and, and then on the output side, providing a way to actually take the coarse energy model outputs and figure out what that build out of infrastructure actually looks like which enables stakeholders to react to these possible scenarios and futures and actually participate much more meaningfully in the planning process. Right. That's a great explanation. Thank you for that. Um, and I would point out also it's a, over a large geographic scale. So your focus of your study is the 11 continental Western U.S. states. So that seems to also be a, a contribution in my mind. But um that's terrific background. Can you just tell us a little bit? I know we're going to get into some of the different scenarios that you looked at. So you had different energy pathways. You have different levels of siting restrictions for protecting environmentally sensitive lands. But before we get kind of dive a little deeper, what do you see as the big takeaway findings from the study? Um, so in terms of really advancing our understanding of, uh, of siting and the land use dilemma, we have four major findings. So the first of which has to do with these energy pathway choices. Uh, we determined after comparison of the scenarios that the choice of energy pathways has huge implications for how much land we'll need. We could either have or double our land use just based on that choice alone. Um, and so siting challenges could be very significant or far less. Um, and namely for that result, the high electrification scenario, uh, which uses energy the most efficiently, had the lowest land and ocean use requirements. The second finding has to do with these land and ocean use protections that we developed. We found that actually surprisingly stronger protections didn't change things that much in the energy system. Yes, we see more solar and less wind, uh, but it's not a complete reshuffling of the major technologies we'd use in the absence of protections. Um, and importantly, that the slight differences in the energy sector actually also was reflected in energy system cost. So we found that costs only increased about 3% with 
the strongest set of land and ocean use protections. And I like to caveat that 3% itself may be an overstated cost because our accounting does not consider mitigation costs that are really associated with projects located in ecologically sensitive areas. Um, the, the third finding related to the land use protections um, is the ecological risks involved. So comparing this to the counterfactual, we find that the impacts to especially intact lands and wildlife corridors could be really substantial if we don't protect uh, these areas from development. And then finally, the last result on the social side, um, we see really interesting land use dynamics uh, of protecting type conservation value lands. With these stronger land use protections, we anticipate a growing role for agricultural lands, both croplands and rangelands, um, for energy development, as well as a corresponding decrease in the number of people who actually may need to host energy projects, um, given a shift from more wind to more solar. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, so let's talk in a little bit more depth about the scenarios and let's start with these levels of sort of ecological or conservation restrictions that you decided to model. There are three different scenarios you use there. So maybe just explain what those are and tell us how much of a difference did it make when we sort of ramp up those restrictions. Sure. Um, so we created what we called three siding levels, and they're based on different amounts and types of land and ocean areas that are protected from energy development. Um, they include assumptions about what amount and type of biomass feedstocks are available. So it's not only um, siding restrictions for wind and solar and transmission. So in siding level one, um, we designed that to be a BAU or business as usual scenario in which we restricted development only on areas with legally protected designations. So as an example, these are national wildlife refuges areas, uh, national parks, marine sanctuaries. Uh, and for biomass, we assume that all feedstock types would be available, but we exclude supply from areas that have been designated as conservation reserve program. Um, in signing level two, we ramp that up um, by increasing uh, the the types of restrictions to include administratively protected areas, um, which we define as places with existing administrative or legal designations that would trigger some kind of consultation or review at the state or federal level. So these include lands that are uh, owned by NGOs um, where there are conservation restrictions. And then they also include uh, places like critical habitat for threatened and endangered species. Um, another example is sage grouse priority management areas um, and wetlands. And then on the biomass side, we restrict supply to ensure no net expansion of land for any purpose grown biomass crops. Um, so specifically what that means is that land that's available for herbaceous biomass is limited to just the land that's currently cultivated for ethanol that's eventually consumed as core ethanol, um, which in the model is completely phased out in all scenarios by 2050. So that ensures that we don't convert any additional new land uh, for purpose-grown biomass. And then in the last siding level, uh, siding, what we call siding level three, which is our most protective scenario, we add areas with uh, high conservation values um, through 
really determined through like a multi-state or eco-regional analysis um, that contains lands with social, economic, or cultural value. So these include prime farmland, important bird areas, which is an, an Audubon Society designated um, area, and big game priority habitat and corridors. And the biomass assumptions are the same as they are in siding level two. So no net um, expansion of land. So with these three siding levels, um, we ran them against all of the policy scenarios. And um, I kind of, I already gave one of the hot top level results, which is we don't see that big reshuffling of technologies. They're much more modest than we anticipated because uh, we kind of expected finding a very large difference in the technology mix given the type of work that we had been doing just within the state of California. Um, so something about moving to this larger scale, this 11 state scale, uh, allowed this reshuffling to happen without a very major disruption in the technology mix. And so what that means, I can give us a few more uh, specific quantitative details. So we see a reduction in wind generation by 25% and a corresponding increase in solar by 25% when we go from just legally protected to protecting high conservation areas. And then as a result of that shift from more geographically dispersed generation like wind to a much more concentrated technology uh, like solar we can, that we can site closer to load centers along the coast. We also actually see an interesting reduction in the amount of transmission infrastructure. So it's about 20% less interstate high voltage transmission capacity, um, which is a really um, promising finding because it's very challenging to site long distance transmission corridors. And then we also, on the offshore wind side, um, we see more offshore wind uh, as we apply more protections onshore. And in terms of the energy choices, we see that the impacts may be modest, but those benefits for land use are significant. There is about a 60% decrease in the development on intact lands, which we define as areas that have low habitat fragmentation and are relatively undisturbed. Um, and then we also avoid a lot of a ton of development, um, 35,000 square kilometers of administratively protected land. So that includes like critical habitat, up to 50,000 square kilometers on areas with high conservation value. Um, and to help put those numbers into perspective, about 52,000 square kilometers is the land area of Louisiana. Um, so these are entire state equivalents of avoided habitat impacts uh, for a fairly minor change in the way that we deploy these technologies. Yeah, well, that's a great perspective to put, put it in those terms and really interesting findings. So you have three different energy cases. So you have all these different scenarios um, and you label them high electrification, slow electrification, and then a renewables only case. So no fossil fuel or additional nuclear in that last one. Did those make a big difference in the land use outcomes when you look across those three scenarios? Yes, most certainly. So um, one of our top findings is that high electrification is the winning choice. And it really makes a big difference when we talk about this in the context of fewer siting protections. So for example, under siting level one, we 
reduce total area requirements by about 50% if we can shift from slow electrification to high electrification. Um, and this reduction is a little less dramatic when we have the most inclusive set of siting protections. That drop is only about 5 to 10%. Um, so it really does matter when we don't have these siting exclusions in place. The renewables only is interesting because uh, we were expecting to see it kind of fall in between um, slow electrification and high electrification. But we actually find that under the highest level of siting protections, um, it would actually require 30% more land area um, compared to high electrification and even and also 25% more um, than slow electrification. So there are very interesting dynamics happening between the energy pathway choices and the siding levels. Um, but on the whole, high electrification wins, most certainly in terms of the least land area requirements across all of the siding levels. Yeah, very informative. Um... I'm going to ask you to think a little bit beyond the paper now, Grace, because I know that you're an, you're an expert in this area. So I have a couple of questions that goes a little beyond. And one is I was just thinking about these restrictions that you have and very informed by all the Nature Conservancy work and so forth. And I encourage people to look at the supplementary information that comes with this article um, for more details on that. But I guess I'm wondering, uh, you mentioned briefly about the agricultural land and citing more infrastructure on agricultural land. So maybe say a bit more about that. But I was also thinking about additional concerns people might have or restrictions somebody might want to place based on rural view sheds or recreational access or other kinds of maybe sort of natural amenity considerations. Do you think that would change anything or do you feel like that would kind of keep the same general results you're finding based on habitat? That's a great question and actually something we're actively looking into um, for this next installment of the Power of Place study, which is at the national level. Um, and we take a, a slightly different approach just to give a little sneak peek of, of what we've been up to. Um, we've been actually applying a social impact and environmental impact factor as opposed to these uh, wholesale binary exclusions. Um, we've been letting the model kind of decide how to trade off um, between the need for clean electricity in particular place with that's really sunny and windy versus the amount of impact it would have socially or environmentally. Um, and we've built in these view shed and recreational access issues. We don't have water quality, um, but most certainly both of those things are in there. Um, and what we do see is that it does make a difference in changing where things go. But on the whole, the role for agriculture is still there. And um, I don't have the quantitative results yet, um, but I think it's just based on the sheer amount of ag land that is in the U.S. that's available. It's one fifth of all contiguous U.S. land. It's going to still be a very desirable place for wind and solar development, even after accounting for viewshed and recreational area um, reductions in availability. And land, in especially in the Midwest, are flat, windy, and sunny, um, and typically not too far from a road or a substation, making them ideal places uh, for putting up a renewable energy project. Um, so my best guess at your question is that it's still going to play a very prominent role. It just may not be where we would see them 
uh, in the absence of these additional natural amenity considerations. Great. We'll be on the lookout for that new paper when it comes out. And now my other question about going beyond the paper is that this is scenario-based analysis um, with many details, spatially explicit details on cost, technical feasibility, you know, renewable energy potential and so forth. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, one thing I see is we have a, a set of private markets in this country overlaid with some federal and state policies or regulations, widely varying local land use policies. So I wonder if you're thinking at all about policies that we need to ensure that we can get these outcomes that we want to get to net zero in a cost effective way that also protects these valuable natural lands. Do you am I asking you to think too much out of the box on this or do you have thoughts about that? No, I have lots of thoughts about this, but I do before I before I launch um uh, like um, with my answer about this, I do want to caveat that these thoughts on policy levers and recommendations are of my personal opinion and um not that of the Nature Conservancy who I work very closely with, so I'm not speaking on behalf of that organization. So in terms of minimizing environmental impacts in particular, uh, my approach is to very much take the mitigation hierarchy approach, which is prioritizing avoidance first. So anytime we can incentivize rooftop and urban infill development for solar that avoids additional land use conversion, we should always go for that. Um, and secondly, in, we should, if we have to do utility scale um, ground mounted solar, we should do those in areas with lower conservation value like marginal farmland and brownfields. And finally, if greenfield projects must happen, the best way to determine where they should be would be through an energy planning framework that has these spatially specific components so that we can conduct environmental and social impact assessments. Um, so really improving that planning process for ground-mounted greenfield projects. But one really important consideration to add to all of that is related to the avoidance of impact. So our first consistent finding from our work on this topic across these power place type studies is that if utility scale development is not going to be in places with high conservation value, it's likely going to be in rural landscapes with working lands, so in rural communities. Um, so that brings potentially significant co-benefits and additional hurdles with sightings in ag this agricultural landscape. So any policies that ensure compatibility of conservation with energy development must also maximize benefits and minimize the challenges associated with the host community. Um, so there are lots of you know, project level actions that we know are effective based on previous studies um, that really increase the acceptance of wind projects in particular. And I anticipate that many of these also apply to solar projects. Um, there's a, actually an ongoing study specifically on solar project acceptability. Um, but those examples include ensuring that there are economic benefits for the host community through lease payments or tax payments and ensuring that they're equitably uh, distributed. And also that there's genuine like, community involvement in the project planning process. Um, and it also helps to have the local government be involved um, to kind of broker that engagement. Um, the last thing I'll end with is that in terms of like an actual concrete set of policy recommendations, I, I think I'm not an expert in this particular area. I'm not a lawyer, but I really think one of the best examples I've been able to find is actually coming out of New York State, 
Um, so they have an act that was passed a few years ago called the Accelerated Renewable Energy Growth um, and Community Benefit Act. I know it's a large mouthful, um, but it's a very much an all-encompassing set of policies that integrate many of the points that I just mentioned. Um, just to provide a handful of examples, they per, um, require us a proof that community participation was part of the process in terms of granting permits. Um, and it also launches these benefit programs that require compensation for host communities. Um, they have an incentive program to promote low-impact projects on brownfields and industrial sites through this process of like actually doing the permitting, the bundling, and the auctioning of these sites to developers. So they really broker that process to make it really easy for developers. And then most importantly, I think, this is the clincher, it establishes uh, like a first-of-its-kind office of renewable energy siting to actually administer these programs um, and, and help with the community participation. I see it as like the mortar and pestle for all these other building blocks in this act because it really ensures that degree of reliability and predictability and confidence in the process, um, which ensures really the success of the overall process itself. Right. Oh, great. Have a look out for that New York law. So, okay, Grace, this has been a great conversation. It's flown by, but we're going to ask you to close with our regular feature, which we call Top of the Stack, where we ask our guests to recommend some more good content, whether it's a book, an article, a podcast. And uh, Grace, what's on the top of your stack? I have so many things because I have been developing and teaching this new course um, at UCSB called Climate Change Mitigation Strategies. Um, so I've been doing a lot of reading and I've been asking my students to do a lot of that reading. Um, part of the challenge was is really for me to try to find sources that concisely summarize academic literature on really timely topics for a broad but technically minded audience. So it's got a lot of these requirements. So I actually think I've landed on Carbon Brief and Knowable Magazine, uh, which is published by Annual Reviews as my two most reliable go-to sources. Um, so I recently had my students read a really thoughtful and thorough piece on whether the world needs hydrogen to solve climate change. Um, and my students love that because it cut through a lot of the misunderstanding and the, like, the mythical nature of hydrogen and lots of the ambiguities on the topic. Um, and they also read a, a piece um, in Knowable Magazine about whether biofuels are green and the debate that was happening at the end of um, the last year between scientists over the sustainability of corn ethanol. I highly recommend that piece. It was really thoughtful and, and really balanced uh, take on this very complex issue. Fantastic. Those sound really useful. Thank you so much. So, Grace, it's been a pleasure having you on Resources Radio. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us about your research and to talk to us about these really important trade-offs and challenges. It's just great that you're doing this work. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about 
by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.